Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you open up your Bibles, please, to Psalm 8 as we continue studying through the Psalms this summer? We're on Psalm 8 this time, which we have sung settings of it earlier in the service. Psalm 8. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. For the choir director, on the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. So it has an inscription at the beginning of the psalm, and it says, for the choir director. And so we know this psalm is intended to be sung. And then it says, on the Giddeth, and we don't have a clue what that means. If you open the commentaries, you can read all kinds of arguments about what it does and doesn't mean. It's an instrument, it's a location, it's an occasion. And then a psalm of David, and we know the meaning of this, it means this psalm was written by David. And so we have a psalm that is intended to be sung, written for the choir director, on the Giddeth, and David is the author of it. And the purpose of this psalm is to glorify the name of God. And so it begins, O Lord, our Lord, and if you look up, well, eh, that's the problem. Huh. I don't know why that happens, but that first Lord, past one, O Lord, that should be all caps. And the second one should be upper cap L and lowercase, the rest of the letters. So that first Lord is the name Yahweh, Jehovah, God. So it's the personal name for God of the Jews. That God has revealed himself to them as Yahweh. Then the second designates what? The second designates authority. (coughs) Excuse me. And so it refers to God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the the personal revealed name of God, and then, O Lord, our Lord, so... O Yahweh, our master, our governor, our king, our sovereign, our authority, our boss. But boss doesn't doesn't begin to touch it. Um, Now, when we read that, it's very, very hard for us to 
to enter into, oh Lord, our Lord, because we live in a country where uh, authority is just despised. We despise authority. We don't like the authority of the state, so we're libertarians. We don't like the authority of our husbands, so we're feminists. We don't like the authority of our parents, so we're just, I don't know what you call them. Or rebellious, yeah. On and on and on. And so, Scripture is so full of the word Lord that it just sort of flows off our tongue and we say, well, the Lord led me to do this and I love the Lord and all this stuff. But there's no authority when we say this. We don't think submission. We don't tremble. What David is saying here is, O Lord Yahweh, our Lord, our governor, our supreme commander. O Lord, our commander, our governor. And then, how majestic is your name in all the earth? And so God's name is who God is. You can't separate God's name and God. God reveals himself as Yahweh. God reveals himself as Adonai. God reveals himself by the word, the name that's used for him. And this is the reason that scripture says, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in name. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, what does majestic mean? Well, again, it's one of those sort of spiritual words that's in scripture and... You know, you don't really use it outside. How majestic, how glorious, how admirable, how adorable, how magnificent, how full of wonder. Note I didn't say how awesome. <laughs> and you laugh and that, that's all I need to say. Why not awesome? Well, because nothing's awesome. What's awesome today are donuts. That was an awesome donut. And so it's lost its utility. It's gone as a word, all right? But how majestic is your name, how glorious, how admirable, how adorable, how magnificent, how full of wonder. O oh Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name. Now notice that David doesn't begin with an explanation of God's glory, but rather with a simple utterance of adoration. You see that? The scholar is always tempted to try to reduce things to submission to his intellect. He can describe it, he can diagram it, he can plot its logic, and therefore he is its master. But this is not so with David and his worship of God. David is so overwhelmed with his incapacity to grasp the greatness and majesty of God, that he simply begins with a statement of adoration. And the only people who will join him in this adoration are those who know the limits of their feeble humanity, of their feeble logic, and of their feeble wisdom. Men who trust in their pride and intellect hate to worship. Let me say it again, men who trust in their pride and intellect hate to worship. Why? Well, because worship is so weak. Worship is so humble. Worship makes a man vulnerable to all those things of his existence that he tries to keep a lid on. Feelings, love, emotion, but mostly humility. 
Worship is acknowledging, but much more than acknowledging, worship is relishing, luxuriating in, exploding verbally in adoration of the object of worship. Worship is irrepressible. And to an intellectual who lives in perfect control of the world through his evaluations, his explanations, his judgments, this is a nakedness and a vulnerability and a simplicity and a, uh, 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 a small quantity of words that he finds intolerable. You know, intellectual controls life through words. David begins this what? Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? And that's not worthy of an intellectual. Because it's an exclamation. Intellectuals don't make exclamations. They negotiate. Every single utterance that they ever make is a negotiation. Not so with David. Was David dumb? Not being an intellectual, was David given over to this kind of worship because he didn't have the capacity to think intellectual thoughts? And to... No. The issue is that David was humble before God. He was humble before God. And so David could give himself to worship. Now what about the Apostle Paul? Is the Apostle Paul lacking the terminal degree? No, whatever they had, the Apostle Paul was beyond a PhD. The Apostle Paul was a postdoc. Gamaliel. So the Apostle Paul was not lacking in intellectual capacity, was he? And yet, think of how often, as you read the Apostle Paul's letters, you find him stopping and simply exclaiming in worship of God. Do you see that? Let me read one to you, which is Romans 11.33. A clue is the first word, oh. <laughs> oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And this is the Apostle Paul. And he's just completely caught up in worship, and his worship is to say that his brain has stopped. And that's something an intellectual will never say. <coughs> so while others worship, the intellectual is in perfect control of the world through his evaluations, his explanations, his judgments. While others worship, he evaluates them. He evaluates their words, he evaluates their gestures, he analyzes their emotions, he critiques their theology, he critiques their posture, he critiques their love and their adoration because he has none himself. Right? In Isaiah, we read Isaiah 6, 3, beginning. You know, beginning with one. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, 
lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Can you imagine a PhD writing such a thing? Even if God gave him the vision, he's not going to put it down. <laughs> you know, he's not going to put it down on paper. I saw the Lord, and he was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. This is incomprehensible to think of an intellectual writing such words. It's embarrassing for God to give you a vision. So he says this, And with two he flew, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so we see David in great simplicity of adoration, quite unselfconsciously, and with great feeling and muscular enthusiasm. Saul killed his thousands, David his ten thousands gives himself to worship, he, he explodes. He explodes. And he says, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And notice that final phrase in all the earth. David is not going off into the la-la land of the secularist relativity. He's not tipping the hat to, to, to the new constitution. You know, he's my Lord. This is my personal faith, my, my personal belief. He says, all the earth. This Lord, our Lord, is Lord of the earth. His name is majestic over all the earth. Now, turning from and building upon his initial exclamation of adoration and worship, David goes for the stars, quite literally. He points to God's splendor as it's displayed above the heavens. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Think of the majesty and splendor of God's name across the earth, then move above to the heavens. How splendid are the heavens? Well, God's splendor is not in the heavens, is it? It's above the heavens. Now, what does it mean to be above the heavens? Well, we know more than we knew 10, 15 years ago. I went back and read what Rita Cuffey, I asked Rita and Jimmy, who were astronomers at the university, to write up for me on this psalm what we knew about the splendor of the heavens. And reading it, I thought... We know more than they knew. And this is just 15 years ago. And so what do we know today? Well, we know that uh, God has made a heavens that are unbelievably huge, large. Um, there are 200 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy. 200 billion, all right, 200 billion, you got that number in your brain. 
And astronomers tell us that there are 40 billion planets orbiting those 200 billion stars, each of which is in the sweet spot of being habitable. So if there are 200 billion stars, there are 40 billion planets in the Milky Way galaxy that are capable of sustaining life given their proximity to their star. Now, other than our own galaxy, we can see 100 billion galaxies. Okay, you're beginning to get your brain around this. So just in the part of the universe that we can see, astronomers estimate that there are 1,000 billion billion habitable planets. 1,000 billion billion. And that's only the part of the universe that's visible to man. And what does God say? Through his prophet David, he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens, above the heavens. That means that the glory of God, the splendor of God, is above the heavens. However big the heavens are, this is above it. You know, you can imagine David out at night with the sheep looking at the sky. How many of you were out watching or looking at the blue moon two nights ago? It was unbelievable. We, have, we live looking out over a valley. And still this morning, I got up at like two or three, or no, no, five, 5.30 this morning. And at five, don't worry, that's not normal for me. <laughs> just, just Sunday I do that. At 5.30 this morning, the sun was, I mean, there you go. The moon was streaming in the window so brightly that when I turned the light on to the bathroom, I thought that I would still be able to see the brightness of the moon on the floor. I actually had that thought go through my brain. And you think of that being just a moon around a habitable planet in one galaxy, you know? And the moon is so magnificent. And God's glory is far above the heavens, far above. You know, if you think about all the scholarship that there is in the world today, all the studying, all the writing, all the journals, everything that's being done today, and the explosion of knowledge of God's creation, just in astronomy. We don't need to go to physics, to, to other disciplines. And you ask yourself, how is it that men don't worship? When you look at that moon, how do you restrain yourself? How do you suppress worship? And you realize the degree of wickedness that men live in bondage to. You realize the only thing that could keep you from exploding in praise like King David is what? It's pride. The only thing that could keep you from exploding in praise to God for nature, for the universe, for stars, the only thing that could keep you from doing that is that you are 
absolutely committed to hating God, and you are his enemy, that you are his opponent. But when we go through life, we never think of anybody being an opponent of God. We just don't think that way. Because we want to go along to get along, and so we, we, we put the best possible construction on everybody's actions. So when we run into a scientist who has studied the glory of God in nature, and they are opposed to God, we just think that they haven't been around nice Christians who are nice enough. And that if they look at us, despite having looked at the glory of God in creation, if they just look at us and think, well, that's a nice guy. You know? That then they'll believe. And we're idiots. We're all idiots. If you see the glory of God in his creation, and you will be damned if you will worship him. A real nice Christian isn't going to cut it. Do you see? Do you understand this? Give give God's opponents the dignity of their self-determination. Recognize the hatred for God, the rebellion against God that corrupts this world. Recognize how consistently it's taught in Scripture. Stop treating people as if they don't know their hatred for God. They know it. And unless you have the faith to confront it for what it is, there's no hope for them. The Apostle Paul didn't go in the Areopagus and say, you men of Athens, you're halfway there and let me show you the final way. You know, he didn't say, God just wants you to like him. You should know what the Apostle Paul said in Athens, like the back of your hand, because it's the only way to live sanely as a Christian in our culture. You men of Athens, I can see they're very religious. You have idols on every corner, but... You know, there's also an unknown God. But this God, I came to, he has set the boundaries of the universe. In him we live and move and have our being. And here they are with all their gods. And the Apostle Paul proclaims this one God in whom we live and move and have our being. And then he ends with, in the past he's overlooked such times of ignorance, but now he demands that all people everywhere repent. For he has fixed the time when he is going to judge all men by his son, whom he, you know. And it's like... Well, that's exactly the kind of evangelism and missional kind of witness that hipsters have, have been trying to explain to us we need to do in the church, <laughs> you know? Listen, if somebody is looking at the magnificence of the universe, at its expansion, and is coming away from that saying, it is not he who has made us, but we have made ourselves has come away from the glory of the universe explaining that the universe is self-existent. Self-existent? This is not a case of you just needing to, to learn to drink tea daintily so that they'll realize that Christians are civilized. Or you smiling or you letting them borrow your lawnmower. This is resistance to God. 
And many of you, if you think back on your lives, you can remember a day when you were that man, that woman. You can remember when you hated God. Now, you might not like the word hatred. You might say, well, I was a rebel against God. And I say, okay, you're a rebel against God. I I don't mind what word you use as long as you don't namby-pamby it. The world is filled with those who will not bow to God. They will not worship him, and they deny what the heavens declare concerning his name and character. And this is not the, the equivalent of a common cold. This is toxicity at the most intense level. It is stage 18 cancer. And the only way it's removed from a man is by God's power and grace and mercy. And until you and your witnessing to people and love for them start to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit instead of your own niceness, which actually, I'm sorry to tell you, you're really not nice. (laughs) You know, I know you think you are, but just let me be around you and sort of In a little while, you won't be nice. (laughs) I thought women were supposed to be silent in church. (laughs) She's my wife's best friend, so she was saying I'm not nice, which she's right. But my wife says I'm nice. Don't, Johnny. I'm sorry, those of you who are visiting today, this is a little bit more intimacy than you can stand. (laughs) Don't worry, my wife and I have a good marriage. Don't we, honey? (laughs) Where is she? (laughs) I love you. So I want to come back to the whole question of, of, um, of worship. Um, there is little that the wicked woman and wicked man can do to oppose worship. Worship is so obviously sincere and humble. And worship drives the wicked rabid because the wicked can never get rid of themselves and their pride, their thinking, their judgments, And it's the nature of worship to lose yourself in God. Right? And so listen, we must cultivate our ability to worship. That's the reason why our musicians and our worship leaders have such a critical place in this church. Because they discipline our pride. Do you understand that? There's a reason why people who are in bondage to sin in this church will not join in worship. 
They're there. Sometimes their mouth moves, but they're not there. Why? Because they're pride. They're just unbelievable pride does not allow them to lose themselves in thoughts of God's glory and to submit to the leadership in calling them to give glory to God. Right? And, you know, I know in a university community, a lot of us would, would like to think that, you know, uh, people who don't have a graduate degree, people who don't have a college degree, people who don't have a high school degree, people that aren't good at thinking, all they can do is exclaim and worship. You know, old people, you know, and people that are stupid. But they can judge. You know, they have the capacity of making judgments. And so little people can worship, but I'm here to make judgments. You know what I'm saying? And listen, don't be fooled by that. All that is is pride. <laughs> and the way you know that is you know that David was not stupid and he could worship. David was not weak and he could worship. The Apostle Paul wasn't stupid. The Apostle Paul wasn't weak. <laughs> and so it's not, a cat, it's not a category of, you know, people that earn their living with their mouth and writing and words and people that work. No. The issue is humility. If you've been here a number of years, you've had heard me read this before, but I want to read something to you that is one of, one of my favorite passages, uh, certainly my favorite passage of Jonathan Edwards. You know that Yale is a, is a uh, Ivy League school and that it's producing the critical uh, series editions of Jonathan Edwards' works. And he's reputed to be one of the greatest intellects that the United States has ever had. And you can buy these books as they come out. I have a few of them from when April Easter worked at the History Journal, and they'd get them for review, and then she'd give them to me. Now, but they're 100, what, 150, 170 bucks a piece, books. And so all these scholars all over the world are studying Edwards. And everybody knows he's brilliant. I believe that this is an account of when God born him again, gave him new birth. And he doesn't say it explicitly, but listen to it. I just absolutely love this. This is from his work called Personal Narrative. Um, he says, from my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty. In choosing whom he would to eternal life and rejecting whom he pleased leaving them eternally to perish and be everlastingly tormented in hell. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. So the sovereignty of God is his authority. That God controls all things for the sake of his own glory. And Edwards says, from the time I was little, I, I did not approve of that doctrine. It appeared to be a horrible doctrine to me. Why? Well, because it's not fair. You know, we all have our understanding what fairness is. You know what fairness is. I know what fairness is. God isn't fair. That's the end of it, right? And then he says, but I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to the sovereignty of God and his justice in thus eternally disposing of men according to his sovereign pleasure. 
but never could give an account how or by what means. I was thus convinced, not in the least imagining at the time nor a long time after there was any extraordinary influence of God's spirit in it. In other words, I came to the point where I accepted it, I felt like I understood it, but I thought that I had arrived there because of my superior intellect, that I had pieced it together until it finally made sense. And he says, not because there was any extraordinary influence of God's spirit in it, but only that now I saw further and my reason apprehended the justice and reasonableness of it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, you know, it's so funny because that's how an intellectual would come to it, right? Oh, now I understand. Where's the Holy Spirit? I don't know, but now I understand. However, my mind rested in it and it put an end to all those cavils and objections. And there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind with respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty from that day to this. So that I scarce ever have found so much as the rising of an objection against it in the most absolute sense. In God showing mercy to whom he will show mercy and hardening whom he will. God's absolute sovereignty and justice with respect to salvation and damnation is what my mind seems to rest assured of as much as of anything that I see with my eyes. At least it is so at times. But I have often, since the first conviction, had another quite another kind of sense of God's sovereignty than I had then. I have often since not only had a conviction, and now listen to this, but what? A delightful conviction. A delightful conviction. The doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. But my first conviction was not so. The first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since was on reading those words in 1 Timothy 1.17. Anybody? Go ahead, David. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now unto the king, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And Edward says, as I read the words, there came into my soul, and as it were diffused through it, a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense, quite different from anything I ever experienced before. Never any words of scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself, how excellent a being that was, and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to him in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in him forever. I kept saying, and as it were, singing over these words of scripture to myself, and I went to pray to God that I might enjoy him and prayed in a manner quite different from what I used to do, with a new sort of affection. From about that time, I began to have a new kind of apprehension and ideas of Christ and the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by him. An inward, sweet sense of these things at times came into my heart, 
and my soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of them. And my mind was greatly engaged to spend my time in reading and meditating on Christ, on the beauty and excellency of his person, and the lovely way of salvation by free grace in him. I mean, you know, this language is pretty embarrassing for an intellectual. The lovely, you know, it's the most common word on IU's campus. You know, at the law school. Professor? Yes, sir. That was a, that was lovely. I mean, it's a joke because, you know, lovely is adoration and worship, let alone of God. But this is what Edward says. I found no book so delightful me as those that treated of these subjects. Those words in Canticles 2.1 used to be abundantly with me, quote, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. The words seemed to me sweetly to represent the loveliness and beauty of Jesus Christ. And I would add the smell of Jesus Christ. How can you separate the lily of the valley from the beautiful smell? Not long after I first began to experience these things, I gave an account to my father of some things that had passed in my mind. I was pretty much affected by the discourse we had together. That means emotionally moved. And when the discourse was ended, I walked abroad alone in a solitary place in my father's pasture for contemplation. And as I was walking there and looking upon the sky and clouds, there came into my mind so sweet a sense of the glorious majesty and grace of God. As I know not how to express, I seem to see them both in a sweet conjunction. Majesty and meekness joined together. It was a sweet and gentle and holy majesty. Also a majestic meekness an awful sweetness, a high and great and holy gentleness. Do you see how he's giving opposites, you know? After this, my sense of divine things gradually increased and became more and more lively and had more of that inward sweetness. How many times has he said sweet now? The appearance of everything was altered. There seemed to be, as it were, a calm, sweet cast or appearance of divine glory. In almost everything, God's excellency, his wisdom, his purity and love seem to appear in everything. In the sun, in the moon, in the stars, the clouds and blue sky, in the grass, the flowers, the trees, and the water, and all nature, which used greatly to fix my mind. I often used to sit and view the moon for a long time. And in the day, I spent much time in viewing the clouds and sky to behold the sweet glory of God in these things. In the meantime, singing forth with a low voice my contemplations of the Creator and Redeemer. And, and I know I've read this to you before. This is my favorite part, right? Do you remember what it is? And scarce anything among all the works of nature was so sweet to me as... Do you remember? Anybody? Yep, you got it. Thunder and lightning. Formerly, nothing had been so terrible to me before I used to be uncommonly terrified with thunder. And to be struck with terror 
when I saw a thunderstorm arising, but now, on the contrary, it rejoiced me. I felt God, if I may so speak, at the first appearance of a thunderstorm and used to take the opportunity at such times to fix myself in order to view the clouds, see the lightnings play, hear the majestic and awful voice of God's thunders, which oftentimes was exceedingly entertaining, leading me to sweet contemplations of my great and glorious God. While thus engaged, it always seemed natural for me to sing or chant forth my meditations or to speak my thoughts in soliloquies with a singing voice. I spent most of my time in thinking of divine things year after year, often walking alone in the woods in solitary places for meditation, soliloquy, and prayer, and converse with God. And it was always my manner at such times to sing forth my contemplations. I was almost constantly in ejaculatory prayer wherever I was. Prayer seemed to be natural to me as the breath by which the inward burnings of my heart had vent. Now you understand why I believe that that's a description of him being born again by the Spirit of God. And his heart is completely bound up with the worship of God. He used to judge God. He had all kinds of objections. Then he thought he pieced it together and and figured it out. And then all of a sudden his heart was changed. And it became the thing that was sweet. And you see that word sweet over and over and over again that God is sweet, that his judgments are sweet, that his thunderings and lightnings are sweet. And so you see David starting out, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. All right? And then look what happens. Who have displayed your splendor above the heavens from, and this is that juxtaposition again, where you have the lion and the lamb right next to each other, right? He goes from the tremendous glory and majesty of the heavens to the tremendous strength of whom? From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. Isn't that incredible? The glory of heaven, all the earth, and then the strength of babies. Now, what is the strength of babies? Is it that, you know, they come from the womb beautifully formed, tender skin, immediately developing, crying, immediately able to nurse. And you just think of all the things that if we were a Hallmark card, we'd say about the sentimentality of a newborn baby, right? Is that the strength that's being talked about here? Just the unbelievable sophistication and beauty of a newborn child? Well, no. Because if you look at the text, what the text actually says is not from infants and nursing babes you have established strength, right? But from the mouth of. Now, what does that mean? Well, what it it means is that babies, nursing infants and babies, through their mouths, give issue to God's power to God's strength. Now, how do babies do that? Well, some people in studying this have said, well, you know, if you look back at the nursing patterns of of little children in, in Palestine among the Jews, they nursed until they were three years old. So 
you know, the child begins to be verbal. So we have some conceptual, intellectual, rational, logical, um, we have a person here, right? And so Peter Singer, you know, a good dog can be better than a handicapped, mentally handicapped child at Princeton, the philosopher, you know? And so what we do is we tie the legitimacy, the integrity, the authenticity, the truth of a child's worship to the child's ability to express himself to us in such a way that we affirm that what he's saying is true and that it's sincere and that there's a person behind it, right? And so by the time the child's three years old, yeah, I mean, we could accept that there is actually worship. We could accept that that child is uh, capable of speaking of the glory of God. But that's not what we see in John the Baptist in the womb with Jesus. We see John the Baptist testifying to the glory of God in Jesus Christ while he is yet in the womb. And we see that Jeremiah, for instance, is set apart by God in the womb. And the truth is that when babies are born, babies are already well-established in the ways of God. Little babies giving glory to God, little babies, little children being the ignorant, the stupid, the handicapped, these people are those that God has perfected praise in. Babies' praise is not to be judged by an intellectual. God reveals it to us by saying what? He says, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. And this is a theme with Jesus. In Matthew eleven twenty five 25, and 26, Jesus said at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. And then in Luke 10, 21, at that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And then Luke 18, 17, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Did you notice that it says that God has revealed it to them? And if God has revealed it to them, the, the integrity of their praise is dependent upon the power of God and not upon their development and their sophistication and their intellectual capacity and their verbal capacity. Right? We are so committed to the center of our life being our mouths. So you say, well, no, that's you, Tim, not me. I say, okay, I am so committed. We just don't think we have an existence unless we're talking or writing or doing something. But God says that he's perfected praise in the mouths of babies and nursing infants. Jesus is very clear about the spiritual capacity of babies and children, right? In fact, not just the capacity, but the worship and the faith of them. God has revealed 
himself to them. What are the applications of this? Well, one of the applications of this is stop treating your children as if until they rise to the level that you have risen to, their faith is not real. It's just completely bogus. It's completely bogus. If God says he's perfected praise out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, then we need to recognize that our children are little worshipers. That's what they do. How many of you have have been in the back when Lexi has been going across the back? And what does Lexi do? Always. She sings. She sings. We don't know what Lexi's capacities are, but she does worship. If there's nothing you know about Lexi when you see her every week in worship, the one thing you do know is she does worship. And you say, oh no, that's just musical rhythm and da 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 And I say, aren't you smart? I wish I'd thought of that. Why, I could have been, I could have judged Lexi. I missed an opportunity. Listen, I know that as parents, it's very scary to watch your children grow up and to wonder what the work of the Holy Spirit is in them. And so there's a certain logic behind being judgmental and unbelieving. But my goodness, if we lived together as husbands and wives in that way, and we waited until there was a track record of six months of not doing the thing we're asking, being asked for forgiveness for, (laughs) you know? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, there's always good reasons for us to refuse to forgive, for us to judge other people's statements of faith. And little children, I remember a little girl came to my office at the church in Wisconsin and she said she wanted to become a member and that was her way of saying that she believed in Jesus. And I, you know, I was kind of excited. This, this was like a, a real live thing going on here, you know, and I was a young pastor, you know, and I said to her, well, okay, you know, did it, did it, did it. And then I said, now, let me ask you, are you ready to give up everything for Jesus? And she looked at me and she said, I don't know. And I said, well, then you just wait until you do know. When you think that you're ready to give up everything for Jesus, then you come back and we'll make you a member of the church. So then I went down and visited uh, this retired United Methodist minister who was a woman named Alma Hooper. I would see her in the nursing home. And I was telling Alma, I was so proud of myself that I hadn't just been sentimental with a little girl. I had, you know, I had said, you come back when you know you're willing to give up everything for Jesus, you know. And I thought Alma would approve of me. And Alma was so angry at me. She said, you did what? And I'm like, uh-oh. And she said, you placed an obstacle of your own making between that little child and Jesus. And she said, you go back, you know. And you look at the way that we judge little children's statements of faith and their confessions of faith. 
um, you know, we don't want to have hope as parents until we're sure the hope is certain. We don't want to have to go through many dangers, toils, and snares with our children. What we want is to have a track record that's sufficient that when they go to the elders, the elders will just recognize that this is a real Christian here. And there won't be any vulnerability, there won't be any judgments, there won't be anything. We'll just, you know. And so what we do is we keep raising the hurdle for our children spiritually, and we end up exasperating the snot out of them. Because no matter how much the Holy Spirit works, it's never enough for our fear. It's never enough for our judgments. It's never enough. And so our children just become hopeless. I can't please my mother. I can't please my father. I won't be able to please the elders. I can't please Tim. I can't please anybody. And so I'm not even going to pretend to have faith Because in order to be a member of this church, your faith has to be just extraordinary, you know? And the fact is, (laughs) you are just like me. You're just like me. We are sinners. You're a little sinner. I'm a big sinner. And we have to begin to live by faith with each other. Our children, God's promised that he'll be a God to our children. Our children have mouths that testify to the strength of God. Nursing babies. We cannot erect hurdles to them living as Christians among us because of our fear. And that's what it really is. You know, you know the saying, hope deferred makes the heart grow sick from Proverbs? You know that saying, hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. And so people like me do what? Never hope. There's one way of protecting myself from that. I don't want a sick heart, so I ain't going to hope, you know? Listen, there is something in between never hoping and pedo communion. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I make no apology for saying this. Many of you do. And we don't react to the hothouse environment of evangelical churches. They're always, pray to receive Jesus, pray to receive, pray pray, 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 pray to receive Jesus. And then we jump the whole way over to just acting as if to be born is to be born again. We have to live in the middle where faulty and sinful confessions of faith are God's strength. Do you see this? We can't be stronger than God. And listen, if you don't recognize the strength of nursing babies' praise, let me tell you, (laughs) the wicked do. The wicked have no problem understanding the strength of God in the mouths of nursing children. (laughs) 
Do you all get it? You're sitting there thinking. The wicked are in bondage to Satan. Don't fool yourself. They will not worship God and therefore they're in bondage to Satan and therefore they hate what? They hate life. They hate babies. <laughs> you know, I know you don't think that's possible because everybody likes babies, right? No. The wicked kill babies. Why? They recognize that babies are their enemies. How can you be a self-determining woman and have a child at your breast? It's impossible. Do you understand this? It is absolutely impossible to be a feminist and to nurse a baby. Either your motherhood wins out or your feminism wins out. But the vulnerability and tenderness and self-abnegation of the woman to her baby is intrinsic to her sexuality. Do you see this? And so what happens is if we're going to be autonomous, our bodies, ourselves, if we are going to be self-determined, if we're going to be proud, if we're going to reject the authority of God and the rejection, the authority of our husbands, if we're not going to get married, you have to kill the babies. Because you cannot allow a baby to become a leech, a bloodsucker, on not just your body, but your entire life. And if there's one thing that's clear, it's that when a woman gives birth to a child the rest of her life, that child owns her. And so, all the unbelievers and all the wicked and all the proud and all the intellectuals know that the baby is an enemy. They know that the baby is an enemy. And that's why we've had billions of unborn children killed in the last 50 years around the world. God has ordained strength from the mouths of babies. And you say, well, no, it's overpopulation, it's not having enough food, it's, it's that, you know, sometimes in tragic circumstances, tragic things are required, it's rape and incest and fetal deformity. Nope. Wicked people recognize that the mouths of babies are the strength of God. Do you understand me? Don't ever fail to see the truths of abortion. It's so clear. You have to be educated to not see it. And so here's what we see. What we see is that when Jesus was here on earth, right, and Jesus came into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, and immediately Jesus did what? He went and he cleaned out the temple with a whip, throwing the tables up in the air because of all the, all the businessmen in the temple, money changing and selling, you know, birds and doing all this, this business, this business. He said, you know, my father's house is to be a house of what? Prayer, but you've turned it into a den of what? Thieves, all right? Now, this is perfectly guaranteed to make the people that presided over it angry. 
But what's really interesting is where we're told of their anger. It says in Matthew 21, 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. (coughs) And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And then listen to this, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. So Jesus quotes from the Septuagint, which is a little different, but they didn't have quote marks and ellipses, right? Jesus quotes this psalm. And if you go to Hebrews, Hebrews quotes this psalm to point to Jesus. And so what you have going on here is you have David writing it about man And so he goes on and he says, from the mouth, because of your adversaries, to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. And so God fights with the wicked through babies. And that's why babies are the enemies of the wicked. Then he says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. Now, I don't really want to, um, I don't want to, well, so I won't. Some of you are wondering, why does it say a little lower than God and not a little lower than the angels, right? Yeah, but we're not going to talk about it. Because it's, that's just itself big, all right? You have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. And so what he's saying is that despite the glory of God above the heavens, despite the strength of God in the mouths of infants, despite the unbelievable beauty of the heavens, of the stars, that God has put his glory in man who is as puny as puny can be, right? Just unbelievably puny. And we're just a little lower than God, this God that presides over the universe. He has made us in his image and likeness. He's given us a conscience. He's made us able to worship him. What is man that he is mindful of us? Jesus then uses that as a prophecy about himself, right? Then Hebrews shows that this is speaking of Jesus. And so you wouldn't believe how many thousands of words in the commentaries are spilled over saying, is it man in general? or the second Adam, man, Jesus, that it's talking about? And the answer is both, both. Scripture often does that, where you have a particular fulfillment and then a messianic fulfillment. 
And that's what this is. It is talking about man. It's talking about you, woman, you, husband, you, wife, you, son, you, daughter. But it's also most perfectly talking about the second Adam. (coughs) And he shows that man, the first Adam, the second Adam, and every one of us is over all God's creation. And that's, that's part of how we worship God, is that we realize not only that God is great, high above the heavens, his glory, not only that he's great showing his strength in the mouth of little babies that nurse, but he's great in that he's put this puny thing called man over all his creation. All. All. And those who will not worship God, those who are too proud to give praise to God, those who will not recognize that God is the creator of all things and give him praise, those who worship the creation rather than the creator will not recognize that he has placed man over all creation. And so this last week on the news, Cecil the Lion. Now, I'm not saying anything about Cecil the Lion. I don't know what Cecil the Lion is. I know everywhere you go in Africa. In the jungle, the mighty jungle, the lion sleeps tonight. You know, it's like going up to the Upper Peninsula and listening to the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. It's everywhere. You know, you go in the bathroom, they got it piped down toilet stalls. I like lions. Whoever Cecil the lion was, I love him. (laughs) Or I did. But listen, people, the subtext of this whole thing is not about Cecil the lion. The subtext is that the world is filled with men and women today who refuse to grant that God has placed man over all his creation, and they want to establish an equivalency between the animal man and the animal lion, the animal uh, antelope, all creatures, all living creatures. Except babies. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah, except unborn children. That's true. And it makes sense. It makes sense that those who will not worship the creator, but instead worship the creation, deny that man alone is in the image of God and therefore has responsibility and authority over all animals. That's explicitly what it says here. It says, you have made him to rule over. And you say, well, ruling doesn't mean that you go hunting. I read one headline this last week and it said, it was some sir something or other in England. You probably know the guy. And it said, sir, something says, hunters are cowards. That's the quote. Hunters are cowards. No, hunters aren't cowards. Hunters are your cat. (laughs) Right? Your cat hunts. That's why I don't like your cat. So what, is a cat a coward? See, so the lion hunted. Well, now, of course, it's man. Why? Well, because we hold man to higher standard. Why? Well, because man has the capacity intellectually to know how awful Cecil the lion is for hunting. <laughs> Listen, if you throw out 
the big metaphysics of Scripture, you become subjected to every inanity, every stupidity, every prejudice, every tiny law that the intellectuals will put you under. Either you say that God is glorious, that his, his, that his stupendous majesty is above the heavens, above the heavens, and that he has made man a little lower than him and he has placed man in authority over all creation, and that he has ordained strength from the mouth of babies. Or, <laughs> or what? Well, or you're going to have billions of babies' blood on your hands. You are going to have no marriage. You are going to have people of the same sex having sex with each other and getting married. You are going to flip every single decree of God upside down and you're going to declare this civil rights and freedom. And then you're going to call people like me intolerant. And you're going to try to gag me. No, 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 no. I have freedom. I was talking during family vacation. I told you this last week, family reunion. So a young man is absolutely confident in his, his, his scientific judgments. And so he spewed out all the rhetoric of our culture about sexuality. It just came out, you know, and my, my mother-in-law was sitting there just listening to it all. Everybody was sitting there listening to it. And it was just so oppressive. And finally I said to him, you know something? Everything that you just said, it should scare you to know how everybody in the whole world agrees with you. Because he was claiming scientific objectivity. You know, that he had a superior place to stand to see truth because he bases his judgments on the data. Right? And I said, you realize absolutely everybody in the whole world agrees with you. Do you realize this? That should scare you. But then I said, you know what? I find you utterly boring. Listen, who is free? Then, if you abide in me and my words, what? Abide in you. His words, his words abide in you. Then what? You shall, come on, you shall know the truth. Come on, say it. And the truth shall set you free. Christians, Christians are the only ones who are free today. Freedom in Christ. Oh, Lord. This is how it ends. Our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So give yourself to worship. Give yourself to recognizing the strength of God in the mouths of babies. Give yourself to exercising authority over all his creation. Study his creation and let it lead you to worship. When our musicians lead you, let them discipline your heart when it's lazy about worship. You know, sometimes your heart is just lazy about worship. Let our musicians kick you and get you going with worship. All right. 
let's go ahead and uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper.